Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Brian and Jason here. And we are going to go into a story that Jason shared, and it will tie into the rest of this podcast. And we've been, over the last couple of weeks, we finished up Influence. We were talking about Patrick and how he, uh, his decisions uh, changed the world. And we were talking about um, Mordecai and Esther and their roles and how they had to wrestle through with their decisions and the effects it had on the people and then the need for the people to respond to what happened and the, the decrees that went out. So you have to go listen to a previous podcast to catch all that. Um, but this one, Jason brought up a great story. And over the last couple of days, we've been kind of pondering it and it really fits. And it fits with our response to things and how we interpret truth and how we interpret a message and how we interpret hope. And sometimes hope comes packaged in a in a crazy uh, bow and ribbon, and sometimes we reject it. But yet, if we were to accept it, how it radically can change our lives. So we're going to get into that this morning. Jason's going to kick us off with this amazing story. This is one of the greatest uh, events and experiences in my entire life, especially in my life as a father. So it's something that happened to my daughter. She's five years old now. This was a few weeks ago. And before I get into it, I know there can be a tendency when we hear stories that involve children for us to kind of write it off as just like a childish thing. And I'm asking you guys not to do that because if you understand the principle that is displayed here, and to be honest, I didn't even get this until a couple of weeks after it happened. I didn't realize the degree, the greatness of what was happening in the moment. I didn't realize for a few weeks afterwards, but when I did, I just sat there for a while and was just kind of in shock over, you know, the revelation of it. So my daughter, she was four years old at the time. This was, you know, a few weeks ago, a month ago. She was four at the time. And uh, one day she got her very first splinter and it was in her thumb. And this isn't a big deal for most of us. We've had splinters, but try to put yourself in the mindset and the body of a four-year-old who's got soft skin, they haven't experienced things like this before, and now they find this piece of wood lodged into their skin, causing great pain. So she came to me, and she was crying because it hurt so much, and she couldn't get it out. And so, you know, me being the great father that I am, I took her aside, and I kind of explained what it was. You know, it's a splinter, and, you know, this is the first time you got one. It's pretty intense. And so we were, I was walking her through the process of what it was going to take to get the splinter out. And she couldn't really come to terms with it. So there was this, this emotional battle in her mind at the time because she understood how much the splinter hurt. It was causing her a lot of pain. It was actually traumatic for her. This is the first time she's experienced something like this. So she wants the pain to be gone, but seeing the nail clippers in my hand, knowing that I'm gonna have to kind of pull that thing out, that was almost as terrifying, if not more terrifying to her than the splinter. So she was caught between, I need this gone, but I, I can't really go through what it's going to take to get this removed because that is also frightening to me and I don't know what that's going to look like. And so I sat with her for about 45 minutes and I walked her through it. I kept trying to encourage her. I just, I just let her kind of process it for a while and I tried a few different you know, tactics, a few different ways of explaining it. I told her about, you know, I remember getting a splinter when I was a kid. We tried counting down from 10 and taking our time with it. Eventually she got to the point where she was ready for me to take it out. And when we did, it was 
almost instantaneous, she realized that it was successful. So we pulled the splinter out and the pain was gone within a few seconds. And she realized that she had just overcome this critical, dire, pain-inflicting issue in her life. She realized that she'd become brave enough to actually go through this. And it was this amazing moment because she was you know, still tears coming down her eyes at the time, but she was excited now. She was actually really happy because she realized that she was taking a step forward. She had just conquered something. And in that moment, she became a different child. And the reason I know that she became a different child was that a couple weeks later, she got another splinter in the same thumb. And she came to me with it and it was painful again and she was crying again, but she realized even though it hurts, I know that I have it in me to do what it takes to get through this situation. And what had taken 45 minutes the first time took like a minute or two the second time. We just got through it, we pulled it out, and she went on with her day. And I realized something. This is how people are designed to learn and grow. In the moment, with her first splinter, I could not make her less afraid. The whole, like, just calm down, this isn't going to last forever, you're going to get through this, that did absolutely nothing. And if we're being honest, when we face something critical in our lives, to the people that come saying, you know, just kind of press on, it's going to be okay, you're going to get through this, that's not really helpful on a deep level. And it wasn't helpful to her at the time either. What was helpful was that she had a father that she trusted because we've spent the last four or five years having a relationship, building trust. She trusted me. She knew I was going to bring her through it. And eventually she became brave enough to go through it. So I couldn't make her less afraid, but I could teach her how to be more brave. And psychologically, that's how we're designed to grow and to live. And this was just such an amazing and emotional time for me and for her because I realized that applies to each and every one of us because we're all facing things right now that probably we have not faced before. And a lot of people are freaked out by all these facts and all these things that are going on. And we, we need a baseline on how to get through things. So when there's a truth, a reality that hits us, because it's not like the pain is not real in times of crisis. The pain is real. The anxiety is real. When that hits, what is the truth we can hold to? Do we have a picture of our father walking us through it? And I kind of thought later on, I would feel so bad for a person or a child that didn't have a father or an authority figure in their life that they trusted to get them through this. Can you imagine the anxiety and the fear that comes along with the situation by itself, let alone not having an authority figure with you to walk through it? And I think that relates a lot to people right now where you're going through something and you feel like you don't have this person you can go to with. So there are some people that are in that situation right now where you don't feel like you have that father figure, that person in authority that you can go to that is going to get you through this because you don't have one in the first place. And even people in the church are starting to realize now that some of them have had a relationship with God for all these years, but he's just been distant. He's been up there. I can throw a prayer to him when I need something. But now the chips are down. Now stuff is real. Now there's pain. Now there's fear. There's anxiety. And without that relationship, it's that story, really difficult to get through I was through thinking about things. all the, the factors that could be involved. Could you imagine if her brother, who was a little bit younger, that probably wouldn't be able to comprehend, but say her brother's older, and he had an experience that he had to go to someone else to get that pulled out and it hurt and the person didn't care about him 
and he would rather have just had the splinter than go through what he did. Can you imagine that experience being shared to your daughter that would actually start promoting a distrust between you and your daughter? Now, all of a sudden, the new information, this wrong information, this pressure, or, or what if she was told uh, not to go play whatever caused the splinter? Let's say it's just a playground and this board that she keeps grabbing and she grabs it again and gets a splinter. So now she's feeling guilt that she did something wrong. Uh, that wasn't the case here, but I, I'm, I'm adding to the case just for the sake of the conversation. Let's say she, you know, so she grabs it. She knows she did wrong, but now she doesn't want to tell you about the splinter because of how she got the splinter. So now she's in pain. Now worse things could happen. There could be an infection. There could not be an infection. It could come out on its own. It may not. But now she's adding in all this. And let's say her brother said, well, you wouldn't have gotten that splinter had you not grabbed that thing. So now she's living under the condemnation of this thing when the fact of the matter is, even how you explained it, you didn't talk about if we don't pull it out, you're going to get gangrene, then we may have to amputate your thumb. You know, you could have added in all of these potential problems to try to, to, try to uh, persuade her to let you do it, which a lot of people do. We add more fear on top of it versus just dealing with that moment. I, I think this is so true in anything we're dealing with um, that's new to us, that, is, that could be potentially scary to us. And I think what becomes critical is removing all those voices and just dealing with the fact you've already accepted it to her, you already came with the solution, and all you're concerned about is let's get the splinter out. And I think how you took that time, and even though it took 45 minutes, you spent more time on your relationship than you did on the fact of why or what the negative outcomes could be if you didn't. You, you spent time on that. And then the next time it happened, she immediately comes to you because she trusts you. And then you could deal with prevention stuff like, okay, let me show you how splinters actually come. Here's something you should be aware of. Um, just be aware. Don't be afraid. But more splinters may come as you learn new things. You're going to go into new environments that you didn't know would carry a splinter. And here's how we're going to handle it. And so you've created this long-term relational piece. And I think that is absolutely critical in our current day and age. She actually already knew how she got it. The first time she came to me, she actually told me where it happened, what the piece of wood was that she scraped her thumb on. So it's not that she didn't know how it happened because, and I think it's interesting that a lot of times we'll kind of go to that with people. Okay, you this thing happened to you. Well, let me tell you why that happened to you. You did something wrong. Well, great, thanks. I was there. I know I did something wrong, and now this is happening. That doesn't change the fact that I'm in this situation right now, and there's things going on. And it's interesting that you talk about other people's experiences affecting how we can see things, because I've seen that in such a real way in the conversations I'm having with people, considering everything that's going on. It's There's, there's such a there's such a weight put on someone else's experience and how they see something if they've gone through it before you. And there, there are pros and there are cons to that. The problem is we end up building our belief system based on someone else's experience, whether it's good or bad. So whether their experience is good or bad really is irrelevant. You're basing your belief 
on what someone else has gone through. And to a degree, I think there's a context to this, but to a degree, that's not a very sturdy foundation because then when things hit the fan and it's you and the circumstance, you don't get to say, well, this person told me this. So, you know, now this should happen. Like with how people perceive everything that's going on right now with COVID-19. Other people's experiences and what they've gone through is very real to them, but that may or may not be your story. They may be reacting with fear. That doesn't mean you have to. They may be reacting with um, naivety. It doesn't mean that has to be you. Like I don't think we really are taught how to build our own foundations for these things. I think it's critical in that conversation when we're talking about truth is everybody says they have truth because they had an experience. Now, there's a reality to this that even the disciples, when they're talking about Jesus, they said they met him, they handled him, they worked with him. What they're saying is we had a relationship with truth. It wasn't a, I had one experience, but not a full aspect of it. And experiences are important. When you, when you do something based on truth, so like with your daughter, you gave her truth, you brought the answer, you loved her, yes. she knew it, so the next time the issue came, she came to truth. So her experience did bring her to truth in that sense. But it was because you had a relationship prior before the problem happened is why she could come to you. If she never interacted with you, you were cold as ice to her, you were distant, you were far away, and then all of a sudden she had this and you came to her with the, the tools to pull it out, I don't know if you'd had the same response. She may have been looking for someone else to help her with her problem because you had no relationship. So the idea that a problem is what brings us to relationship, a problem may bring an answer but it doesn't bring relationship. Relationship begins because of a trust between each other, and that happens in all the journeys of life. You know, back to experience, I, I was in a, when I was 17 years old, I uh, was at an intersection, and I was turning, and a car ran the stop sign and broadsided my car, and it caved my door in. So I, had, I was pushed over to the passenger seat, and I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Well, had I been wearing the seatbelt, my hips would have been crushed by the door coming in. So as a 17-year-old, my experience was, forget this seatbelt thing, it's more dangerous. And so I became arrogant about the fact I don't wear a seatbelt because my experience with the seatbelt was this. When I went into the police academy and I started looking at the statistics and I started being involved with that, not to mention it was a law, and once you start paying for a couple tickets for not wearing a seatbelt, your mind quickly changes on whether you believe it's right or wrong. The fact of the matter is you don't want the ticket. But in when you look at the general statistics, then you have uh, this moment. Now, I'm not saying which one was true and which one is not true and who wrote the laws. My point was I was basing truth on an experience that didn't consistently align up in every situation. And so when someone else was in an accident and the seatbelt saved their life, now is that the new truth? And my, my point of that isn't to get back whether a law should be there and all the credibility behind it, because there's some things I disagree with that are mass done because it's not based on truth, it's based on mass. And sometimes mass still has damage. And so 
I don't, I'm not trying to go there with this picture. What I'm trying to go there with is I became convinced I had the truth because of my experience. And so it's, it becomes very important that when we're looking at whatever we're going through in life, some people will have a positive experience. Some people will have a negative experience. Some people thrive on the negativity. They, their whole, their whole, in order to sell a product, there has to be a negative thing. So I have to sell you on this negative thing. So we become convinced of the negative thing. In all of this, though, we don't have a relationship with the one that can bring the answer. Or we don't trust the one that can bring the answer. It could even be an official that's doing things in your best interest. And we don't trust them because we don't trust the motive that's behind them. Or the answer comes from someone that seems like they have the answer, but their methodology doesn't fit our social norm. It doesn't fit how our, our way of thinking works. And so this truth comes and we won't accept it because we don't want to let go of how our social pressure has, has shaped our way of thinking and our, and our therapeutic comforts that we've built around it. Do you think there's a problem with how some people have based their relationship on God then? Because to go back to the, whether it's the splinter example or the seatbelt, whatever it is, we've based our relationship with God on our sin and his ability to forgive it. That's been the core of the relationship. That's been, in a lot of circles, the thing that's marketed. You have sin, you need God to forgive it. And so our relationship is based on a problem. And if that's the core of the relationship, I mean, I keep thinking it with how I relate to my daughter. If it, if our relationship was based on me being able to fix the problems and the hurt she gets into, that would not be the right kind of relationship. There's, there's more to that. Me fixing problems and healing her pain and bringing her out of pain is a result of our relationship, but it certainly is not the core of it. I like what you just said there. It's the result of the relationship. You know, when you go to a doctor, you expect certain things. And you really don't need a relationship with a doctor. You're going in there to accomplish something. If you go to a car mechanic, um, you're expecting something. But it still comes to that point of the trust and the relationship. If I don't trust this mechanic, I'm not, I don't care what he says to me. I don't even care if he recommends truth. I won't believe him because I don't trust the motives of that person. But if there's been consistency and other people have interacted with them and they might even say, hey, his methodologies are a little bit different, but just trust he'll get your car fixed and it will be cheaper, whatever the, the situation is. And I do it and I was like, man, the car's running. I didn't know you could fix that with a garden hose. I would have never thought that. But he does because he's had experience and he's done this many times and he found better mechanisms to actually solve the problem. Um, I, I would continue to bring my car back, but bringing it back to this point of this relationship, it also now ties into the characters that bring truth, the characters that bring answers. And I think what was unique in your story is you were comforting your daughter, but you were still keeping to the truth, honey, I got to get this splinter out. Allow me to take the splinter out. The focus was still on the solution, but you didn't you didn't have to be, oh, honey, I know that splinter's there. Let me just put a Band-Aid over it, and we'll just leave it in there, and you know what? We'll just, we'll just, here, I'll put some numbing drops on there, and so you won't feel it anymore. And if you don't feel it, after a while, you won't even believe it's there, and we, we therapeutically 
do that. Or we're harsh on the other end. Give me your finger. Grab it. Yank it out. And you know what? The pain may go away. But I have a feeling she ain't going to be coming to you when there's another problem. It, it, it's still because we have this shaping. So I wanted to look at a character in World War II that, uh, first of all, to know his character, he was audacious. He was bold. He said all the wrong things at the wrong time. He was not politically correct. He created a problem for his commanders because he would say the wrong things, and he was overly audacious and all of this. But when you look at his character and his history, there's two things that he looked at. He absolutely hated people who hurt the innocent, and he loved his men. All right, so this is this character. And he was so audacious, he actually accomplished those things that everybody said that he wouldn't do. The other thing that he did was the enemy was absolutely terrified of him. They moved armies away from where his army was coming, and they would go and attack in other areas where he wouldn't be. They, they were afraid of him. And when you read reports after World War II, they were terrified of this guy. They, they knew that if they let him loose, this thing would be over quickly. And so it was, it was interesting, but there was a scenario that happened that he went into a medical center and there was a, a soldier that was crying. And he said, what's wrong with you? And keep in mind, this general would go through all the troops. He would he would stand on the front lines. If he he would get out and move jeeps if they were stuck in the mud. Whatever he, his soldiers knew, whatever he this general asked them to do, he would go do it. He built a rapport within his army that when he asked them something hard, they would just do it because they knew he would do it. And something stirred because he built a relationship with his men the best he could with several thousand men, but because he would get in and he would lead from the front and he would interact with them and he cared for them and he got them what they needed and he took care of them, they also took care of him. This relationship was forged. The The challenge became is when someone was, uh, like this, this man was sitting there, he was crying and trembling. He says, what's wrong with you? And he says, it's nerves. I got nerves. Well, he slapped him. He said, I should have you shot. Well, he didn't shoot him, and it was wrong to slap him. Well, of course, it went to the news, and the PR about this general, which was George S. Patton, went public. And now the public opinion of George S. Patton was he's this mean guy, he's out of control, all of this stuff took place. So he got sidelined. He got, he got put into tasks that were non-essential. And it, it drove him crazy because this guy is not the right character to fit. He didn't fit the public opinion. Now he wanted the same thing more than anybody else. He absolutely believed in the cause. He absolutely saw who the enemy was. He absolutely loved his men and he wanted these innocent people set free. That was his mission. But he was, his mannerisms, his skills of training, he spent his lifetime preparing and training and, and he was a genius in, in strategy. Well, the Battle of the Bulge comes and all of a sudden, Germany does a counterattack, which the U.S. thought the war was over. And all of a sudden, it wasn't. It was fully engaged. This uh, attack happened, and it bulged the lines in, in uh, Western Europe. And so Patton came in and said, here's what we need to do. If we cut off the bulge, 
it'll stop the army, but a few people will may, a few people will die, but it will save thousands and thousands of lives. A decision had to be made. See, there was a cost to every decision. I think that's important when we're measuring people and their decision. There's a cost. Even when you're pulling your daughter's splinter out, there may have been a little bit higher degree of hurt temporarily, but it's over. And so there is that truth. There, there's sometimes it feels, a, it feels a little more painful at times to remove the thing that actually sets us free, but it's so temporary. But when you look at the cost of not doing anything, it's so much greater. Well, they shut them down. They didn't do it. They wanted to do it more politically. They wanted it to look good. They, they, they gave command to people that had that they wanted to bring the PR of the, of the communities and the, and the world to look at them, and they went at it wrong. As a result, Patton got over, uh, looked over for a promotion, and that more people died at that point in the war than all the way through the beginning of the war because of that decision. Eventually, they let him go do it, and it worked. But it was too late. The cost was too different. And so here's the point I'm getting at. Truth was sitting in front of these people, of these generals. There was a truth. And they actually knew Patton would do what he said he would do. But because of the PR, because of the environment, because of all the, all the other ways of looking at warfare and the public opinion of back home and all of this, they didn't want to let him do it. And so I find it interesting that a lot of times truth is sitting right in front of us. And those that know and have a relationship with the person bringing it fully trust them. And the people that are being relieved or being attacked fully trust them. They know he's going to do this. But it's all the outskirts of how we measure an individual or how we look at them have hindered us from having answers come in a way that brings life, freedom. But there is a cost to this. And I think even when it comes to the grace of God, which has absolutely freely been provided for through Jesus Christ, absolutely freely to have this relationship with the Father the same way Jesus had with the Father, is absolutely free in what's being given. But it will cost you ways of thinking and things that you have built your world around. It will cost that. But it's to give you something better. And I think sometimes we want the thing that's freely given without any disruption to our current way of thinking. And truth disrupts your way of thinking. It alters your foundations of what you believe. It alters your how you function. But it is a short-term, brief cost to a long-term of fruitfulness, life, freedom, and everything else. Instead, we want to mask it, comfort it, make it therapeutic. And what happens is you have a temporary relief but the, but the compounding interest of that is so much greater. And we saw that in Esther. If you remember with Esther, she wrestled with that decision because it could cost her her life to go free the people. And Mordecai tells her, you can do nothing and God will raise someone else up to deliver them, but your family will perish. In other words, she could have masked it temporarily, but the truth if she stepped into it. And what we find is if we do step into truth, actually the, the, the truth bringer is actually bringing you to a better place. It just appears and it's masked by all of the illusion. And so we hold ourselves back from it.
and we'd rather attack the truth giver than accept what the truth is. Isn't it funny the the hold that fear has on people and can play in decision making? I mean, people naturally fear what they don't understand. That's that's kind of a natural instinct. There's something unknown, so you don't know the degree to which it could affect you in a negative way. That's a natural fear that people have, but I really wonder if if we're more afraid of, you know, if we're taking an, a specific action, for example, if we're more afraid of the truth of what that action will result in, or if we're more afraid of the public opinion that will result from that action. And I think a lot of times it's more so the public opinion that's going to sway us. I've, I've had some conversations the last few weeks with people about this, and I, I see people doing things or not doing things, not because they think it's the right thing to do or the best thing to do, but because of how it will look to other people if they see them do it or not do it. And, and there's a whole lot of bunny trails and, you know, well, what about in this case that we go, we could go down and I don't want to get sidetracked with that because there's a context to every situation for sure. But ultimately, do we even ask ourselves the question, am I doing this because I know it's the right thing to do. I know it's who I am. I know it's who my father's made me to be. Or are we doing things because, well, that's what the people around me expect me to do. And that's what, you know, this category of people says is the wise thing to do, the logical thing to do. But I do think it's so interesting how so many people, so many heroes of history in the Bible and outside of it, there are these people that did things against the societal norms. But it wasn't just... I'm going to be a rebel, so whatever people think I should do, I'm going to do the opposite, because that's, that's foolishness as well. They had a core in them, and they were going to do it regardless. They were going to be that regardless of the outside pressure. We see people responding positively and negatively to that. You and I were talking before about uh, Pontius Pilate facing a similar kind of external pressure with what he was going through and ended up bowing to it and bending to it. And we see people like Patton in history facing tremendous external pressure, but not giving into it. So I kind of wonder what is the difference between someone that gives into the pressure and someone who doesn't? That's really a great question, because how does it look and play out for each person is, is a little different. And it's basically, it you know comes back to who are you to that situation. And keep in mind, Patton didn't just take and go rogue with his army and ignore every other other thing. He still had to get the authority to go do it. He still had to go to the authority place to go do it. He just kept petitioning and, and preparing his men as if he was going to do it. But it didn't mean that was going to happen. So I think there's a difference between I know what's right and I'm going to go against social norm just for going against social norm's sake. Because you're still, there's this conscious idea of I'm in this for me. I'm protecting me. This is about what I am. And the truth is, those that truly know who they are no longer try to live for themselves. They actually can see beyond. I mean, you look at Joseph. He changed the world of Egypt. I mean, we've talked about these different characters. Even Mordecai. He didn't go and send a decree to all the Jews when he heard this decree by Haman and said, all of you guys prepare for a revolt. We're going to turn on the nation. Because we know what would have happened then. They would have been absolutely crushed because they weren't walking under an authority to actually do that. And so some may say, yeah, but what if I don't have any authority? What if I'm being oppressed? What if my rights are being stripped away? 
if you can just step back, and I, I think this is critical, don't use your emotions and your feelings and your experiences to determine your decisions. It has to be based in truth. And you have to be able to accept the consequences without being squeamish about it. Because we can see that with even the, the civil rights protest of Martin Luther King Jr. When he's marching through the streets, he did have the authority to go do that. He did have the freedom of speech. He did it in an orderly manner. But he was standing against something based on the authorities that were given to him, and he pushed back. And I think it becomes imperative that we learn the relationship with the truth giver so we can understand the application of that truth in the situations that we're in and the time to step back and the time to hold back and the time to step forward. Because at the end of the day, are you trying to advance yourself or are you trying to advance something bigger? And if what you're doing to advance yourself works temporarily, it may actually damage the bigger idea. And so these become critical and I think as someone, when you, look at, when you look at Paul or you look at Peter or you look at John and you look at the world that they lived in, they did things in an order that they were never persecuted because of doing wrong things. They didn't, weren't persecuted because they were breaking laws, per se. They were persecuted because they stood in a truth that they wouldn't bend to, but they were still respectful, they were still honorable, but they wouldn't bend to that truth. That truth is what killed them. That truth is what cost them their lives. But you know what? They didn't care because they already had something better. This was all temporary. They weren't living for themselves. They were living for something much bigger. And I think we have a world that we jump into causes. We're, our next generation is all about a cause, a cause, a cause. But they, they want the group to embrace them. And then they do the cause. But would they be willing to stand on their own? because they saw a bigger truth that would hold the ground, even if it cost them their friendships, their relationships, but they were confident in the truth and the relationship with the truth giver that they could stand alone on it. There's another side of this that's interesting to me. So we, we've talked a lot about as it relates to our approach to things, our response to things, and having it not be according to societal pressure necessarily, because we want to be confident enough in who we are to be able to step out um, in the proper manner. But I also wonder how many people in our society, in our culture right now, that we see doing things that go against the social norms and we'll write them off as being outside the box. Maybe 50 years from now, we're going to look at that person and say they were the hero we needed. And this is not a political thing. This is not I'm honestly not even thinking of a particular person right now. I'm just trying to look at this general concept. And this is not a political statement. I'm not thinking of a particular politician or church leader in general. But I think this principle is something we need to approach because a lot of us, I mean, I'll just speak personally, we can fall into this thing of seeing what someone's doing, how they're doing it, and just kind of automatically putting them into a category and writing it off as some kind of character flaw. And maybe it is a character flaw. Character flaw. Like, yeah, maybe Patton shouldn't have slapped that soldier. Maybe in a perfect world, he'd be that, you know, that bulldog in wartime. And then when war was over, he'd put a peaceful hat on and start a flower garden and do things like that. But honestly, I don't think that's how people work. But maybe we're looking at certain people around us and writing them off because we expect them to act a certain way. 
But at the same time, we would hate it if someone did that to us. If you felt so confidently that you were doing something that was on your heart from your father, he was with you and someone was judging you because you didn't fit their idea of how you were going about it, you would feel bad about that. You wouldn't want someone judging you for that. So maybe in certain contexts, we should kind of flip that mirror on ourselves and ask ourselves if we're doing that to other people. Maybe one of the questions that we could ask is what am I willing to give up for the sake of what I believe is truth? In Luke chapter 14, in verse 28, it says, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet those who come at him with 20,000? Or else, while he is still another great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. There's times in peace, or there's times in a problem, we need the authority of the place that we've been positioned in in order to move forward. But we don't have the support. We don't have the concept. We haven't considered what the cost is of that. We just think we're being bold. This creates a problem. And the general that I was bringing up with George Patton, we could see it with many generals. They were determined that this is what they were going to do. And it was okay if they died doing it. Like they had so sold themselves into this that if it cost them their life, it cost them their life. Think about how Jesus came in to bring his kingdom. He went into the hearts of people. And how did he, he said to provoke the Jews to believe, I'm going to go to a people that were historically undeserving of favor. And he gave them favor. So he lifted those people up to try to help provoke those who were waiting for him to accept him. I thought that was fascinating. He didn't just tear one down and start over. He actually started lifting other groups of people up. You could see this in every sphere of life. You could be on your job. You get a promotion. The person who you jumped over thought that they deserved it. So they tend to want to almost undermine what you've done. And now how are you going to respond to that? Or the same is true. Someone you don't think it's deserved and gets a promotion angered and you go home and say how I deserved it. They got it. I deserved it. It was wrong. And we get into that versus how about just stepping in and staying who you are and then watch what happens. And history has shown truth always emerges on the top if, the, if someone would be willing to stay to it. I've noticed something in leadership. There's a big difference between being for something and being against something. So the people that rally around the cause of being against something or tearing something down, you are constantly going to need an opponent to tear down. And so even if you do tear down that thing that you're going against right now, you're going to need something next because that's your drive. That's your fuel. So you are, in a sense, a slave to what you're railing against, even though you are against it. You are bound to it because that's your goal. But the one who is around to lift people up, you'll never run out of people um, that you need to lift up. You'll never run out of fuel for that. That has such a long-term staying effect. And I think of it, even going back to the story of the splinter, I wasn't really against the splinter. Like that wasn't the point in that moment. I wasn't anti-splinter. I was for my daughter. I was for her having a great life, free of pain as much as possible. And not really just a life free of pain, but for her to be able to get through it and deal with it. So I didn't spend the whole time focusing on the splinter. It was more about what she could do. 
because the splinter will come and go and then the next day she'll face something else and the next day she'll face something else. But if it's always, hey, watch out for the splinters. Okay, now watch out for this. Okay, now watch out for this. That's just such a, a draining way to live. I think in some ways we've interpreted God in that light where it's always, okay, God, how are we going to fix this problem? How are we going to fix this problem? How are you going to fix this problem? Do we ever take the time to just kind of focus on the relationship absent of any problem? Like if there was no problem, what would your relationship with God look like? Would it be an awkward moment spending time with God if there were no problems because you have nothing to talk about? If so, then maybe it's time we kind of reevaluate our core. It comes down to that. Um, I think in, in all of these stories and these examples that we keep bringing out, I'm always trying to bring back to some core principles for um, people of what can we hold on to? How is the joy of the Lord our strength? How are some of the fruits of the Spirit that are talked about of peace, love, and all those, all those uh, amazing fruits that change people's lives? But keep in mind, if, if you're bearing fruit, who's the fruit for? It's for other people. And so how does your place of influence begin shaping that? One of my local heroes here is Dave Eubank with uh, the Free Burma Rangers. By the way, highly, highly recommend go watch the movie they put out. It was in theaters, and now you can get it on Vimeo. Um, it's $19.99. You can uh, go to Vimeo, pay for it. Well worth the watch. And it brings perspective to how does Christianity and our beliefs operate in hostile territories that are out of control? How do we function in those environments? How do you function in that? And let me just say, when you when you live in a place that there's authorities over you and there's areas and they, you do have freedoms, um, you utilize those freedoms effectively. You need to be active with those freedoms. Dave Eubank brings up uh, when he was in Iraq and, and uh, working and bringing food into the front lines and rescuing people, citizens that were trapped in the fighting between the ISIS and the Iraqi soldiers, and how that all worked and and how he felt and having one of his uh, workers shot and killed in the process of, of doing this and his response to it and how he sees Jesus loving the people. And and even when he's dealing in a, in uh, Burma with the longest known civil war in the history. It's been going on for 50 years. And at times you just have a hatred towards the enemy. But when one of the enemy surrenders and comes, he ends up converting his life, but he has so much guilt of all the things that he's done. But the army embraced him. Love started overcoming. And so it really gives a great picture of this conflict that we're in, in a real conflict versus the internal conflicts and our just social environments. And again, uh, should the war come to an end? So there's a difference between declaring war on something and living within your society, influencing the structure and the policies and the thoughts. They're both active. They both are critical. But the, but the actions of them, um, if you don't want a civil war, are based in the authorities that's been given and you work within and you persuade and you vote and you change out and you work work all of that within the system and the structure. Like in Persia and Mordecai, he worked within the structure to bring change. And he became, because Jesus said, I'm going to make you, the kingdom of God is like leaven hidden in a lump of, of meal. Over time, the whole thing is leavened. So it only takes a little bit. So I would say the majority of God's strategies throughout history is to place someone as leaven in an environment that begins shaping and changing that environment. 
But going into war is completely different because now it's a direct onslaught and there's a different tactic in that. And sometimes we don't know enough about history and the concepts and, and the ways and, and this relationship piece. We think there's just one way to do things. And I probably would not want a George Patton running the country. I may. In a time of war, I would want him to. But maybe in a time of peace and and dealing with other issues, he may not be the best person because his mentality is geared for one thing. So we all have, have our giftings and callings. And when you put people into the wrong position because that's where they think they need to be, sometimes it brings more destruction than it brings life. And other times people we thought would be the worst person to do this, this is awful, is the absolute best person because of the tactics and the thing they're developed in, but they're both true people. They're both right people. There's not something wrong with either one of those people. They're designed for a time and a space and an environment to become effective, which brings me all the way back to knowing who you are, knowing who you are to the Father, and following his plan to place you into the right place and to do the right things. And so I've come to that. Even people, I'm like, man, I so disagree with that decision. That was the dumbest thing ever. Think about what you're doing to the PR of our world. But I've had to step back and say, what's he been designed for? And what are you taking him into? And and maybe at first it appears wrong, but what, what happens if he stays that course and doesn't bow to the pressure? Maybe Maybe it's the thing that holds a line so something else can bring victory. And so we all have this critical role, and it kind of frees us to be us. It frees us to be that, and that's where Paul says, pursue peace with all people if possible. But sometimes it's not possible. All that to say, I'm hoping this is giving a much bigger perspective. Jason, I wanted to ask you, how, how are you taking that story with your daughter, and, and how is that kind of you, you grew so much in that of understanding those roles of your role in that and your daughter's role in that and the perceptions of those things. And how is that affecting now your day? And how, how would you bring us into applying that? A few things, actually. So one, it's made me very excited. I mean, I've always enjoyed this, but even more so now, very excited about seeing people develop and grow. When you actually see it happen, especially to someone so young, where you can see a tangible difference in them, it makes it a lot easier to believe in people and to want to walk with them and help them grow. And so with all my kids, actually, and it's it's kind of a coincidental time because spring's coming up, we're able to get outside more, we're able to do more things, and I'm seeing this desire in them to want to do more, to want to push their boundaries and grow and take on more responsibility. And that is such an exciting thing for me as a father to see them step into that. And there's times where it's rough. There's times they fall down, they make mistakes, they do things wrong, they don't listen. I mean, they're toddlers. That's kind of par for the course. Anyone out there with kids, you know what that's like. But I've actually found a lot more patience in myself for them too, because I understand that they're developing. And my patience is not near the level that God has with us, I'm sure which is actually pretty encouraging because I consider myself a pretty patient person, not to pat myself on the back, but to know that God's patience is honestly infinite with us, that it doesn't matter if it takes 45 minutes for us to get through this issue or an hour, a week, a month, a year, he's with us on it. Well, that's one thing I'd want to encourage everybody listening with. You're facing something and 
you might get frustrated with yourself with how long it's taking you to emotionally or physically or spiritually get through it. God's not frustrated with you. He's still right there with you. He wants to walk through you with it. So he's not giving up on you ever. And I know that's become a cliche in the Christian circles that God's not giving up on you. But man, I've really seen what that feels like now. Because in in my experience with my daughter in that splinter story, there wasn't ever a moment where I thought, you know what? I'm just going to put her in her bed. She can cry it out. She can deal with it. That, that never came into my mind. I'm a human being. So to, to see that God truly has no limit to his patience with us and that he's continu- continually with us, it's such an exciting thing. And I'd also say an appreciation for that relationship and, and how rough it is to have to go through life and go through things without that. Would, would you recommend on your younger kids to go and just stick a splinter in their finger to get it over with earlier? Just jam one in? And then have have you take it out so they know what that's like? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't that be a good teacher of this whole thing? No, I would call that um, insanity, abuse, craziness. That's that's the. I mean, anyone in our society would call me an abusive parent if I was like, "Hey, kids, why don't you just go get a splinter? Hey, kids, stick your hand on this hot stove. Hey, kids, break your ankle so that I can fix it for you." You know. That's insanity. So the truth is your daughter didn't learn from that experience who you are. She learned how to overcome in that experience because of who you are, but the experience itself did not shape your relationship. It revealed more about what you can do, but the character of who you are wasn't revealed in that. I think a lot of times because of our disconnect with God, we, we, we do that. We religiously put him far off. And so it's almost like he's allowing things to happen to us. Well, you allowed your daughter to get a splinter by letting her play. By letting her be her as a little girl. You could have padded up the rooms. If, if you were a good dad, you would have put, wrapped her in bubble wrap, put a ventilator inside, and rolled her out in a bubble so she could be safe. And I think that's... I know I'm being a little absurd there. I'm just saying that is what we almost view as, like, wow, something happened. No, you live in a world with splinters, and they're not going away. It's how are you going to respond to it. And it's almost a development that I trust you to get out there and to go, and and things are going to happen to you. So in a sense, you allowed her to get the splinter from a sovereign point of view, because as a father, you could have locked her in your room. So sovereignly... You allowed her to get a splinter. But do you see how that goes into a a weird way of thinking? But the truth was you were there with her, so now she knows how to overcome and function in that world that is against her. And I wouldn't even say it was me fixing the problem for her, because there was a very real aspect where she had to participate in it. I mean, technically, yes, I could have held her arms and legs down, and even though she's really squirmy and, you know, kids are kind of strong, surprisingly, but I could have held her down. I could have, you know, strapped her arms and legs down and then just forcibly removed the splinter. That would be a very terrible and traumatic thing to do. So she ultimately had to participate and say, all right, I'm going to hold my hand this way. I'm going to, you know, turn my finger over here so that you can get to the splinter. So it was ultimately my power that delivered her from the splinter. Yes, but she had to operate with me in it. And it, it was there was a lot of teamwork, 
And we had to develop trust to get to that point. That's what the 45 minutes was. It was, okay, you got to believe me. We can do this together because I'm, I'm with you on it, but you got to believe me that we can do this. So you do this, I'll do this. There was such, I can't even, I can't really describe it perfectly because there's just something about that moment where there was a partnership. It was us working together and she came out of it a better person, a more brave person, a more confident person because of it. And so, no, I would never do that to her. But when things do happen, I will absolutely be there with her through it. In, in some aspects, it's so empowering because you've made your daughter free to make choices and to learn and to grow and you've walked it with her versus putting her into an oppressive control where she never even gets to enjoy the freedoms that may have put her in contact with a splinter. And again, the reverse could be, I'm going to throw you into splinter land and you're going to be forced into thousands of splinters. I don't mean to belabor this point, but I think it just becomes really critical because we hear this in our normal relationship with God and, and looking at people. And one other aspect of this that I think this is really critical um, when we're tying these two together and we're, we're talking about a relationship and knowing who you are and whose you are and that guidance in that, but then also our 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 roles in the world around us, just like your daughter going out and potentially getting a splinter, you're allowing her into growing into the world around her so she can function. And I think it's very important to note, even with the characters I was bringing up of how we look at things, is every character has a different function and role. And it's so easy to bring criticism on someone who doesn't function. So let's say, for instance, someone is taking a stand in something and you're like, wow, I'm starting to feel the pressure to take a stand too. So I'm going to go take a stand. And it's almost like we're not being us, but you can still be supportive of that. I have a lot of good friends that I would trust in a, in a situation and I know how they would respond and they would do it amazingly. But we don't think the same way. Uh, we think the core same way about things, but our application of how we would go about it is so different. I'm, I'm not really, uh, I have some people that are just front frontline bulldogs that are going to stand in the face of anything and just be out there and they don't care what you think about them and they're going to drive forward. And it doesn't always work when you're trying to bring comfort to a different group of people. But to another group of people, that is so critical. And I'm, I have to step back and not measure how people handle things based on how I am. When I know their character and I know their passion and I know their love for people, and when I know that about them, their methods of doing things, I, I can't sit and judge it. But here's the great thing. I don't have to be that. And I'm still doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't have to be that person. I, I wished I was more like Dave Eubank and had the military experience and been in special ops and been a captain and could go into war zones and, and courageously do that. I don't have that experience. I might have some of the boldness, but I don't have that experience. But I can take what I am and go into my environment and handle it in a way that brings truth and brings life to people. But it's a different environment. And so if we were to switch roles, we would be disasters. But when our right role in our right environment in the right conflict, some are meant for war zones, some are meant for peacetime rebuilding, some are meant for different aspects. And I think it's just important in all of this that we're learning, be you with your father, be you in that relationship and don't measure 
how you're going to handle things based on the pressures of those around you, but you're still aware of the bigger picture so that way you can wait for your timing and your function within those things. All right, everyone, final thoughts as we close this episode out. Life is crazy. There's a lot going on. Stay calm. Know who you are. Spend some time with your father and do what he's called you to do. You're with him on this. He's with you on this. You're not alone. And uh, we'll be back here next week bringing another episode. Continue to uh, reach out to us through the website or on Facebook. Um, you can comment on the podcast. One quick thing, there's a lot of things going on with the ministry in Thailand and the U.S. We're not going to go through all those updates in the podcast for the sake of time, but if you guys are interested in that, you can get the monthly newsletter by going to the website. Uh, it's outboundlife.org. On the bottom right, there's a little section that says message us, and you can just type in add me to the monthly newsletter, and you'll get all those updates. There's so much incredible stuff going on that God's doing, and we want to keep you guys updated about it. So until next time, we love you. Keep a calm head.